we are about to embark on a month-long expedition journey uh, that I think will be very valuable for all of us, myself included, uh, because it's going to be dealing with some of the very most important fundamental questions about our religion, our faith, and really, by extension, our life. Uh, the hope is, is that uh, after a deep dive, a thorough investigation into these very important matters, uh, we can emerge with better insight, better understanding as to what our, res our responsibilities are, what our opportunities are, what are the challenges and obstacles that lie before us uh, in our lives, in our spiritual lives as well. Um, and the idea is to examine you know, the most important principle, the, f the foundational, fundamental principle of our religion, our life, and um, I'm going to make the argument that really everything can be traced back to one idea, that there's one central idea in Judaism uh, of which everything else is an outgrowth. Everything else stems from it. It is the core of everything that we do, every mitzvah that we do, uh, every uh, ritual, every holiday. Everything stems back to that, and that's really the ultimate goal, that there's really one central, unified, ultimate goal uh, in our lives and our responsibility uh, to achieve. Uh, and, and that idea is going to be the idea of God. And you say, okay, well, we knew that coming in here. Everyone knows that God is the most important principle of Judaism. Uh, but what we're going to try to drill down into really, like, examine um, what the Torah says about it, what, what the message, what the mission for us is, and how, um, and how we are to go about doing this. It means that the idea of God is, is a foreign idea for us, really. Um, one of the big problems uh, that we're going to have is that just getting definitions is hard. You know, obviously, to conceive and conceptualize and try to get some imagery of God is impossible. We have the name of God that we can't even say, right? Because the name refers to God himself. The proper noun of God is the name that we can't pronounce. Why? Because we can't understand the idea of something existing outside of the realms of our world. So we're dealing here with information, with, with entities that are hard for us to conceptualize. How do we bridge that uh, to the idea that this is supposed to be everything that life's all about? So we have some major fundamental problems that we're going to have to see how we, you know, how do we engage with these problems. Um, and the hope is that um, we'll be able to clarify these, these issues and avoid what I think is maybe the, the most detrimental, uh, disastrous, calamitous, catastrophe uh, that afflicts most people and that most people live their lives and make the most important decisions about what ought to be their priorities, what ought to be the, their values, uh, what decisions to make in the most important decisions of their lives without actually investigating, without actually analyzing you know, the big cosmic questions that really ought to be in play. So essentially we have what I think is the most important entity, the most important responsibility that most people don't spend a half hour thinking about throughout the course of their lives. And that's terrible, I think. It's a travesty. Uh, where you have an issue that's so overwhelmingly important, yet most people don't employ their most 
important quality, a most important tool towards analyzing and assessing that most important question. You know, I think when we talk about the we talk about the the analogy of man walking through this world like a blind man at the edge of a riverbank, where it's it, we're walking this tightrope, yet we're blind. And, or maybe a better way to say is that we have one of those masks that people wear on the airplane to try to sleep, right? You know, imagine that that you know, imagine you were forced to tightrope across, uh, you know, a very narrow bridge. And you decided to never actually take off those little, you know, that little sleep, uh, what is it called, the sleep mask that they put on top of you, those little, the little thing that you always see on the airplane, you know? And the goal today and this upcoming month is to try to say, okay, we are living this very volatile world that who knows if we'll be successful, who knows if we can look back at our lives and say, we did everything that we can to try to maximize the opportunities that we were, that we were granted, uh, but because of the hustle bustle of the chaos of this world and the job and the kids and the family and the politics, of course, we have 2016 coming up. Uh, there's so many things that distract us that we never actually stop and ask these very, very important questions. And we lose out really on something really fantastic that we could have very easily achieved if we put our mind to it. So that's the goal. Um, and I want to start off with kind of bolstering my claim. Uh, my claim is that the idea of, I'm going to get used to this Hebrew word, emunah. Some of you are familiar with it. It's, it's, it's the word that loosely translated as faith, and, but we're going to have a hard time kind of connecting the idea of emunah and faith in, in kind of the classical uh, sense. Um, but I want to establish the claim that, that, that emunah or emunah is the most important uh, mitzvah, of course, and that everything really links to it. Um, and essentially I want to make the claim that every mitzvah that we have is uh, essentially a mitzvah of faith or emunah. Uh, when we eat matzah on Passover, yeah, we're eating matzah on Passover, but that's, we only do that because of faith, really. Because, or, or faith or emunah. You know, we have a mezuzah on our door, you know, we have, we read from the Torah scroll, we give chat. everything really is a reflection of our emunah. I want to add something we'll see a little bit later in more detail. Our character, right, character, your behavior, uh, how you treat others, uh, that is a big part of Jewish life, trying to improve our character. I would argue that that too is about faith. And conversely, every sin, essentially, of the 365 categories of sin that the Torah uh, uh, warns us about, all those are essentially idolatry. Right? How could someone sin when God says, don't do that? How is that possible? How is it possible? The answer is that this a sin is essentially saying to God, I'm not interested. It's a rejection of God. Well, of course, that's not as bad of a rejection as actually going to a Buddha temple and bowing down to some figurine, of course, but in a, you know, in, in, in a subtle sense, when someone says to God, I'm not interested in what you have to say, I have a different plan, well then, they're in essence rejecting God. So every one of, the whole Torah, all 613, is really about two. It's really about positively, right, accepting God, right, 
saying that what God tells us is important and matters, that is that will be reflected in us performing the mitzvahs. And rejecting God, on the other hand, would be reflected in us re- rejecting what he tells us to not do. We could boil down all of Torah to really this one idea. And in fact, by the way, if you guys remember, Ten Commandments. The first two of the Ten Commandments we hear from God directly. And then the people tell Moses, well, this is too much for us. We can't hear you. Why don't you talk to us? So Moses says, okay, fine. And Moses completes the last eight. There's a problem. If the Jews are incapable of hearing God directly, then they should stop after one. If they're able to do one and two, then why can't they do three through ten? Why would... I mean, if it's too hard to hear, if it's too much to bear, like, you know, like they say, then stop after one. And if it's not then, you know, push forward, you know? Tough it out. The answer is, is that the first two of the Ten Commandments are all of Torah. I am the Lord your God, faith, emuna. That's one half of the coin, right? Don't have any other gods, that's the other half of the coin. God wanted to ensure that he gave the Jews himself the entire Torah. The Jews had to experience prophecy and directly receive from God all of Torah in this highly concentrated form. And then says to God the Almighty says to Moshe, okay, now why don't you break it down to the, you know, to, you know, to the granular level? You know, there's really two ideas. Have faith in God and don't reject God. Don't, don't not have faith in God. Oh, why don't we break it down? So, well, having faith in God is really 248 categories. Break it down for us. 248 mitzvahs. Rejecting God, idolatry, well, let's break that down. to 365 negative mitzvahs, right? Prohibitions, transgressions, which each of them are a reflection of idolatry. Thus, um, I think we could safely say that emunah, or faith, is really the dominant idea of all of Torah. Are you using faith and emunah interchangeably? Well, okay, so, so yeah, well... Good question. Because faith to me is defined as belief without evidence, which is heresy, because we have so much evidence. Well, yeah, I, I agree. And what I'm going to be presenting, or at least introducing today, is that I have discovered through my research that indeed that there's ten levels. So it starts off maybe with what we would call simplistic faith. Uh, you faith because your parents told you, because your school told you, because you read in the newspaper, because you just believe without thinking twice about it. Otherwise known as voter ID faith. Would that be called blind faith? It could be blind or it could be based upon tradition. You assume that uh, it's true even though you have no evidence. You never actually thought about it. It's just faith. You know? Or it's, maybe you're emotionally compelled to believe a certain way. You just haven't intellectually thought through it. Too. Okay, so it's, it's, not, it's not a product of, of, of investigation. It's not yeah. a product of it's – not, it's not clear the idea. Yeah, so that, that yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. And, and maybe there's, in Emunah, what, we, what, what the Torah demands of us, maybe there's nine other levels of that. So, and I wouldn't compare it, each one of them is, is mutually exclusive. Okay. So each, each one of these levels is an entirely different realm. Okay. So to, to have one name for all ten, you know, is problematic. So I guess I'm saying faith, Emunah, some other levels that probably we call prophecy. Prophecy is a level of faith, or emunah. It's a higher level than simple faith, for sure, than simple emunah as well. Even more advanced emunah. 
So we're going to try to break it down. So I like to use the term faith because that's the, that's the English word that's most easily translated from emunah, what we're talking about. Uh, maybe we should just use an emunah or emuna. That would simplify things, though. Everyone's okay with that? <laughs> okay, so that, 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 that's, that's uh, one, um, uh, one argument, I think, that we can make to buttress our main assertion that emuna is indeed the goal of all of Torah and all of mitzvahs. Uh, now, we find Maimonides, when he gives us his uh, collection or his delineation of 613 mitzvahs, he writes them down in order of importance. And voila, what's the first mitzvah that he brings us? Emunah. That's the most important mitzvah. In his book, Mishnah Torah, which is the complete restatement of Torah, the very first section, he calls it Yisodeh Torah, the foundations of Torah. And the first four sections are about Amunah. And I would argue the first, uh, uh, the, you know, the whole section of foundations of Torah deals with Amunah. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's, it's a very, very fair argument. I don't hear any dissent uh, from the crowd, but it's a very fair argument to make that really it's all about it. Now, no, what's the problem? What's the problem? The problem is, is that emuna is decidedly difficult to achieve. Number one, we have a very hard time, like we said earlier, even conceptualizing what does God even mean? What does that term even mean? It means, right, it's defined as something that we can't possibly conceptualize. Right? We cannot utter it because it's beyond our comprehension. So we're being told that everything really uh, that's important in the world the only thing that really matters, the only thing that lasts, is something that we can define, but we can't really understand. And even Moses, Moses who's going to climb at the top, the very top, Moses and Abraham, prophets, right? They, God tells Moses, what did God tell Moses? You can't see my face because a man cannot see me and live. And what does that mean? Of course God cannot be seen because it's not, there's nothing physical, nothing tangible. It means God cannot be completely uh, understood and comprehended because it's not possible. We are limited in our, in, in our scope. Well, that sounds, you know, if you hear that, you say, wait a minute, are, are we trying to avoid the issue? No. Uh, but we approach the issue intellectually and we realize that while it is definable, we can never really be at peace with our understanding the way we understand the physical. Give you guys an example, you know, just to kind of piggyback on what we talked about last time. We have the Christians, okay? Uh, the Christians love talking about polemics, uh, polemics of uh, of theology. Yeah, I don't know what that word means. Uh, it means debating the the you know the 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 idea of, of theology. We almost never talk about theology. You look through the Talmud, you find very little about it. You look through the Torah, you find very little about it. And the reason is because to us, theology, right, which is the nature of God, is something that we cannot really understand. So the more time we spend trying to delve into the intricacies of theology, you know, the more our mind is going to rebel almost. 
It's, it, you know, it's, 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 it's as if we're trying to understand something that is impossible for us to fully comprehend. Now, the Christians, on the other hand, well, how, how did they avoid this problem? They say, oh, the idea of God incarnate. Now it's, let's take God and bring him down to our level. Humans, we can understand. Voila. If we, if we lowered God's status, of course we can talk about God all, all the time. The idea of God in pain. What does that even mean? It's nonsense. How, how does something that is not bound by time, by time and space, not capable of any human form, or any form at all, how does that entity have pain? It doesn't. But if you change the definitions, and if you bring it down to the, uh, the mundane, where now it's physical, okay, well, it's possible to have pain, it's possible to talk about it, it's possible to debate, debate about it. I mean, the very problem of our uh, interaction, our interface with God, to be, uh, to be understood you know, in, in, in our mind, that was sidestepped by uh, the Christians. Now, we don't do that. We don't change the definition of God to make it easier for us to talk about it. So one of the uh, questions we have to ask, okay, so if we cannot understand God because we're physical and God's spiritual, what is this emuna all about? What are these 613 ways of having emuna? What are the, the, this most important facet of our religion, of our spiritual lives, is something we can't even define. Well, we can define, but we can't really understand. We're physical, God's spiritual. There is almost no interaction between those two. Nothing. There's no interaction. It's two different wavelengths. Indeed, we cannot understand God through our physical receptors. You want to see God, you want to smell God, you want to taste God, you want to feel, right? Any one of our physical senses cannot understand God. What we're going to have to do in order to have some sort of interaction, interface with God, is going to empower our other reality, our spiritual reality, our soul, and thus our soul is spiritual. Our soul can connect to God. Spiritual and spiritual can have a touch point. So essentially, what we need to do, and we're going to try to see how that's actually done, and if we are able to essentially convert our perception from being merely physical to being primarily and progressively more spiritual, if we're able to put on our spiritual lenses and see the world with our spiritual lenses, we'll see God everywhere. The problem is, is that we do have these spiritual lenses, but they're deep in our heart, deep in our entity, and we have to expose them. And it's not easy to do. Essentially, we could say, perhaps, that the 613 mitzvahs are 613 different ways to see the world in a spiritual light. How do you do that? That we have such a dominant body, such a dominant physical entity. You know, how, how do we suddenly see the world in a radically different you know, dimension? What would be helpful if we started by understanding that we are a spiritual entity having a physical experience? Rather than a physical, having a spiritual. Experience. Well, we're we're both. It's a very different. Well, I understand. I agree. I, I agree with you. But 
but uh, but I think the the reality is uh, is that our host, so to speak, the body, is dominant. Now it's not more powerful. It's not more powerful, of course not. It doesn't last as long, uh, but the. Uh, the order of priority that we have in our lives is body first, soul, distant, 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 second. And if we could change that, we're on the way to faith. If we could change the dynamics of who's in charge of our life, of our perception, what do we see, how do we interact with the world, if we could change it from physical to spiritual, then suddenly we're engaging with the world with the tools, with the forces, with the abilities that are very much capable of understanding God. Well, society, but, you know, we have our own responsibilities as well. And, uh, you know, the great society, no political implications to that, but a great society where the entire society is working on achieving this goal is is wonderful. We've had those things throughout history. Uh, But the fact that our society may give such primary importance to the physical and neglect the spiritual does not obviate us of our personal responsibilities as well. But my point I want, I want to bring here is that we have a fundamental obstacle in our pursuit of faith. Why? Just to recap this. We are physical bodies. We, we are physical hosts, physical dominant physical entities that have a spiritual component as well. That's not just a spiritual component. Of course, that spiritual component gives our physical uh, world vitality as well. You know, if you, what happens if you extract a soul from a body? You die. That's right. It's like this. It's like it's like the software that programs everything, right? It's the, the it's the spark plug that enables the physical body to work. So, so in, in essence, our physical body is is dependent on our soul, but we don't know that. And the entire uh, uh, premise, the entire challenge of of life, the riddle of life, if you will, is that our perception of reality and reality are remarkably different and almost in direct opposition. Uh, our, what we see, we see nothing spiritual. You don't see the, you don't see the spiritual world. I don't see anyone's soul. I see everyone's faces, beautiful faces, by the way. But, but I don't see, I don't see, we don't have any, and, and our eyes. You don't see our spark within. Maybe, you don't see. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe. My Maimonides actually does You're say. Why would I know, Janet? <laughs> <laughs> well, do you see it, or do, does your physical yeah, eye see it? Yeah, okay. True. I agree. I agree. It's not mistakable. I, 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 I would agree because what happens when someone dies? What happens when someone dies? The second after someone dies, their countenance changes entirely. Well, what happened? You know, the blood hasn't been drained. The answer is that their soul, which gives, and the Talmud even says that. I quote you the Talmud. I agree with you. Uh, the Talmud says that um, the soul provides ten things for the body. You know, the body. The body is a bunch of organs, right? A bunch of limbs. Uh, but the limbs don't work unless the soul enables them to work. And one of the things that it's described is is hadras panim, the countenance of the face. That your soul provides your face this 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 
this aura, if you will, this 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 vitality, energy that is really it's it's hard to define. But if you look at someone's face when they're alive and once and when they're dead, you see something changed. Even though what is it? You know, it's hard to in, define. In an experimental lab, now they they tested the dying person and they found uh, I don't know how they did this, but it was on a scale. And as soon as a person died, an essence or something like that escaped them and they became lighter. Interesting. Yeah, but only by by <coughs> tilting yeah. around. Yeah, but um, the thing is that our soul doesn't have any form. It doesn't. It's spiritual. So you know, it's kind of like if 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 you have a if you have a this is one of the examples. I think it's a good way to visualize it. If you have a piece of hardware and then you load the software on does the piece of hardware weigh any more I don't think so it, it, it doesn't yet it's now a fully functional device it's not just a uh, a um, bookend you know it's not just a paperweight but what is that it's it's something that's that's not you can't visualize it it's, it's so I think it's a wonderful analogy you can't visualize it, you can't, you can't measure it, you can't weigh it, but it's, it's everything. You know, the hardware that's software, it's paperweight. Or something that powers electricity, you don't see the electricity. True. And, I, and, I, and by the way, I want to make the argument, this is a, li- a little bit of a tangent, but I want to make the argument that, that the, the fact that the world provides these analogies for us is a tool for us to visualize this as well. I mean, the fact that we're able to see things in the world, in the physical world, that kind of mirror the process of this dynamic between the physical and spiritual world is a tool for us that we can use to understand, you know, this, this dynamic. The first analogy I gave to my daughter was oxygen. Can't see it. I was like, but you can't live without it. And that's, Hashem did it that way because you can't see him, but you can't live without him either. So, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. everything he did was That's right. an analogy for us. I like that. Mm-hmm. Or bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> I like oxygen better. No, but it, I'm saying it's, it's true. Like, there's, there's things that we, we, you know, we can't deny are real, but we can't see them. But they affect us. You know, the, the, the Talmud, by the way, discusses germs. You know that? When the when when germ you know germs this the discovery of germ that you know that theory of, of disease came fifteen hundred years after the Talmud was already written the Talmud talks about germs even though these things we can't see so ancient ancient uh, physicians had no idea of this the existence of this thing the Talmud was able to, uh, to do that. I, I would I would make the argument that Talmud knowing or the great scholars and sages of Judaism knowing that because they were already sensitized to the idea of this other existence, this other realm that we cannot see. They already talk about the soul, right? The Talmud talks about the soul. The soul sees but is unseen. We you can't see the soul. We have a great understanding of the gravitational pull with which we are all exposed to every day. We don't think about it, but we have influences of the moon that most people don't want to think about. And I would make the argument: There's a lot of things that are there that me, we may see the effects of, but we don't see. It goes shocking on a new, on a full moon. 
what happens? It uh, lots of people are different. <laughs> okay, interesting. Oh, be the fire department. We're not the fire department. We have more emergency runs. Yes. During the full moon, any other time. Yes. Interesting. What did you say, John? I'm sorry. The fire department. The fire department. We had more emergency runs during the time of the full moon than any other time. Are they more likely to shop uh, recklessly? They're just bizarre. And it's not me talking. I mean, interesting. It just is. Interesting. Okay, so let's uh, let's uh, let's. It is interesting. I, I don't I, I don't I don't go shopping that often. Does it work in online shopping as well? Oh yeah, that we can't see. That we can't see, but are clearly present. On That's the right. And, and and thinking about that, thing, that I think is a very powerful tool that we can use to try to understand. You can measure gravitational pull. Yes, you can. And you can and you can get a microscope and see the bacteria and stuff. True. That's true. That's true. But uh, but this is not something we think about as we no, get no, up and just, go through the course of the day. That's true. Okay, so let's, 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 I want to just talk a little bit about, you know, we talk about defining God, that we can give definitions to God, even though we can't really understand them. At least we, our, our physical body cannot. Uh, so I want to just go through three of them that kind of highlight the problem that we're going to have that we've already mentioned uh, that make it very difficult for us to try to, with our physical existence, have an interaction with God. So number one, Maimonides tells us, I'm saying this is well known, uh, with the idea of Hashem Echad, God is one, there's no parts. Um, and it's a different kind of oneness. It's not like, you know, if you have one, this is one pen that I'm holding in my right hand, but it's comprised of a lot of parts. If you actually break down, there's, you know, there's the pen, there's the cover, and then inside. Like, you, you can break this down to multiple different parts, you know, and essentially you could break down the plastic into, into multiple different molecules, and everything that everything in this physical world uh, can be broken down further and further. Uh, yet we're told that that the oneness of God cannot be uh, broken down uh, to any further parts, which is something that's really hard for us to wrap our hand around. Uh, number one, number two, God's not a body. So anything that we associate with the body, uh, a body moves. A body is tired and needs to go to sleep. Um, a body needs faculties to power. Like if you want to see, you need eyes. If you want to hear, you need earballs. Right? If you want to taste, you need taste buds. If you want to digest, you need a tool to operate that function. If you want to walk, you need legs. If you want to gesticulate, you need hands. Right? So it's hard for us to try to imagine some force, some power not having some sort of tool, some sort of element, some sort of bodily part that operates uh, that power. It's hard for us to see. We, we don't, we're not familiar with that, you know, with that uh, capability. It doesn't make sense to us. Uh, and Maimonides tells us, by the way, that the, the divergent realities of the physical and the spiritual world are so different, so distinct from each other that it would be akin 
to trying to explain to a blind person what color looks like. You want to explain color, how do you explain color to someone? How do you do it? Well, the only way to do it is if you have common experience, overlapping experience. You know, but if someone's never seen color, they would have no idea what green or blue or yellow is. How do you explain it? Go ahead. A blind person cannot see. But if they stand, they put their hands for the... I mean, sometimes they can tell the color. They can feel form. They can feel the one. They can, they can define what color could be. It's well, they could be taught, but they can never really understand what color is. Uh, but it is there. It's the same God. We don't see God. That's right. Well, but now I want to make, continue this, this analogy. So we're like the blind person, right? Like we said earlier. With the blind person, we can't see the color. But imagine the blind person wasn't actually blind. Their eyeballs didn't work. Imagine their eyeballs did work. Just someone, for some diabolical reason, decided to suture them shut. Which obviously sounds terrible, right? <laughs> but just let's, let's, let's go with the analogy, right? It's not that they're blind. It's more like their eyes aren't exposed. Correct? means they have the capacity of, of sight. It's just that it's obscured. <coughs> so that could be because they're locked in a room and everything's dark. They could see perfectly well. It's just that there's, you know, they're, it's all covered up. They don't have, means so you're saying even if someone has had the common experience, but they you know they can they can lose it. Interesting. I've got to add that into the analogy. Uh, but I want to make the argument like this. So let's go back to our soul. So we have the soul. The soul is is entirely spiritual. The soul is very much capable of understanding God. If we're able to isolate a soul, by the way, what would happen if you would isolate a soul? Would the soul be capable of prophecy or not? Absolutely. Prophecy is some sort of interaction with God. The soul has no obstacles. There's nothing separating the soul. The soul is spiritual. God's spiritual. It's capable of, of interaction. But you would have to have a physical instrument no, why, to relay it. Well, why would that be so? I don't think so. What would be the point? Well, I, I don't say there would be a point. <laughs> but theoretically, if we could isolate a soul, the soul is capable of prophecy. By the way, if we... Maybe we'll do this. Um, oh, I think we might have done this. I don't remember if we did this. But if we, if we examine, if we examine um, what the Torah tells us about a soul before birth, I'm pretty sure we did it over here. Didn't we do it over here? We did it. Uh, the soul is talking to God, negotiating. I don't want to grow down. I do want to grow down. Study all the Torah. Where does that come from? How does the soul, this, you know, this, this primordial soul, that was never even in a body, how is it capable of prophecy? The answer is, is that it doesn't have the obstacles. It doesn't have its eyes, its vision, you know, sutured shut. It doesn't need any help. It's there. The soul is at prophecy because the soul is spiritual. 
The problem is the soul is suddenly thrust in the body, and all its I'll tell you in a second, all its receptacles, all, all its antenna, are suddenly covered up by the body. It's as if these eyes that are capable of this interaction are suddenly stitched closed. So this is your explanation why the soul, if it exists, which I'm skeptical, um, <laughs> why the soul can't speak to, even though it's in the physical body, can't speak to God. Well, that's right. It means it's it's there, but it's you know it, it's like I you know I would give another analogy. Maybe this will make it more clear. Um, imagine you have an antenna that's capable of picking up radio signals. The problem is, is that it's in a box. And the box is in another box, which is in another box, which is in 500 million other boxes. Well, that's going to muffle the, the transmission, correct? Well, the radio is fully functional. It's fully powered and it's got tons of battery and it's got, you know, very powerful antenna. It's capable of picking up signals very well. It's just that it's being muffled by the fact that it's in a box, which is in a box, which is in another box, and 500 million boxes. Uh, so our soul is like that radio, and our bodies are like those boxes. All we got to do is remove the influence of the body, take off the boxes, right? Take out the stitches of the eyeballs, and suddenly, voila, you're there. What, is, uh, what does your soul mean in our body? Where is it? Well, well, I'm saying that's that. I'm saying that question is trying to give the soul the same sort of physical proportion, proportions and dimensions and dyna- dynamics that the body has. So you say, okay, where is the soul located? Well, the Talmud says that. Well, no, that's maybe how it was inserted, uh, but it permeates the entire body. It's everywhere. I, I, I read in Just like the software, where, where is it? Where is it? It's everywhere, right? In Ezekiel, uh, the soul that sinners will die. And then I thought, oh, well, I think first. No, I feel it. You know? I think, I, I speak, and I act. In a negative way, Well, yeah. well, that, that's interesting because uh, what what you're referencing mm-hmm. is the the three. Uh, that's right. The three modes of behavior. Mm-hmm. The three modes of behavior. That behavior can be a thought, which obviously for us to see, I can't see what anyone else is thinking. Um, uh, but a behavior can also be something which is a little bit more tangible, like you know, like a like a, a saying, like speech. And then it can be even more tangible for us, like an action. Or intangible, like a look. Yeah, or a thought, like a look. Can yeah, I, that's right. Um, but um, all three of those are forms of action. 
now our soul, to try to narrow our soul down, where is it going to be? Right? It's going to be everywhere. You know? the, way, the way the soul is compared, talk even just to the classic examples, the soul is compared to the, uh, you know, to the rider on the horse, right? Uh, or what the Talmud says. The Talmud describes the, the, the soul and body relationship as the relationship of the two guardians of the orchard. Right? The king finds two guards to the orchard to make sure no, no, no one steals any of the you know, any of the, any, any of the, um, any of the fruit. Uh, and the problem is that the, one of the, uh, one of the uh, guards is blind and one of them is lame. Right? And what do they do? They conspire together to eat the fruits themselves. So the lame guy who could see, he gets a piggyback ride on the blind guy who can walk. And he directs him through the orchard and they pick all the, all the fruits and they eat them. So too, like the body and the soul, right? the body is blind, it doesn't have the vision of the soul, it doesn't have the spiritual vision of the soul, but it can do actions. It, it, you know, it, it could be a tool, it could be employed uh, by the soul to either do mitzvahs or to sin. Uh, once again, it's, it's, it's another parallel to this idea that we have this coexistence of body and soul and our choices are going to be: Are we going to give? Uh, uh, we're going to make the, uh, the, you know, the the wanton uh, desires of the body, the fleeting desires of the body. Are they going to maintain their primacy uh, in, in our focus or not? Um, and like we said, you know, back to sorry, we got a little this. Uh, I'm not trying to figure out how, where are my notes? How do we get back to where am I? <laughs> it happens all the time. Um, but the, our soul, right, the soul has the vision. It's able to understand the spiritual reality much better than our body is. Uh, but our body is dominant, right? Because the soul's power is muffled. Um, additionally, by the way, um, we describe God as being beyond time. Not being bound by time is something that we cannot wrap our heads around. We exist within time. It's not possible for us to reclaim yesterday. It's not. You know, we could try to maybe rectify what happened yesterday, but we can't change the reality of yesterday. It's not possible for us. It's a limitation. Uh, for, for God, it's not a limitation. And by the way, for our soul, it's not a limitation either. Theoretically, this purely theoretical. If we can totally divest ourselves of any bodily influence, we would be able to time travel. Also teaches that. Huh? Teaches that definitely also. It's very simple. It's very simple. Divest yourself of your body. Simple. (laughs) (laughs) We have the first recorded documented case of time travel, in fact, the only one, with regards to who, who time traveled. Anyone knows who time traveled? Moses. That's right. How, when did Moses time travel? Mount Sinai, which the uh, guy showed him the Kiva. That's right. <laughs> uh, in one of the most interesting, you know, uh, perplexing maybe, intriguing Talmudic statements, Talmudic narratives, we find Moshe uh, being shown the class of Rabbi Akiva. 
Akiva lived in the first century, in the early second century of the Common Era. Moshe preceded that by uh, more than a thousand years. And that's only one of the most intriguing things that are going on in that particular narrative. Uh, but how was Moshe able to time travel? How do you do that? No, no one seemed to ask that question. What we'll see is that once we get to the top of this pyramid, this Emuna pyramid, right, these ten levels, if we're able to ascend to level ten, which I'm highly dubious that any one of us here could do, maybe, who knows, but um, it's unlikely. We only know one person actually done that, Moshe, Moshe Moses. But if theoretically, if, if someone will do that, well, then they're almost entirely a soul and the body is just there. It's they're, dif- they're existing in an entirely different dimension. Well, the, and they're not bound by the restrictions of the body. So they're able to communicate with God. No problem. But you're saying that every, you know, if we're able, able to see something a thousand years from now, everything's fixed. It's already predestined. Ooh. But, that, but, but, that, but that's not only a reflection of what we can see. It means you're saying, hey, if we're able to be godlike and not be bound by time, does that change the fact that we are bound by time? Right? Are humans bound by time? Yes. Yes. Thus, humans have challenges. If you're not bound by time, well, does that change the fact that someone else may be bound by time? I'll give you an example, right? Can you change what you did yesterday? No. Because we exist. Yeah, maybe, but you, you know, you can try to rectify, but you can't change it. But does that change the fact that yesterday you had a choice? No. So the fact that you're now in a different realm in time doesn't change the fact that you were yesterday bound. I don't. I don't imagine that that would be a problem. Now remember, this is not. Maybe this. Maybe this is what we should have called, right? Six weeks to time travel. That would have brought in the crowd, right? <laughs> uh, is the 10 levels that we're speaking of, is that uh, compared with the Kabbalistic uh, 10 Sephiroth? I don't know anything about 10 Sephiroth. Um, I don't know anything about that. Right, what about, was uh, Isaac doing the same thing as time traveling when he was seeing the several generations ahead of his kids? Oh, Jacob. Him? Yeah. Well, I'm saying it's not just Jacob, it's, it's uh, any prophet. That's prophecy. How is a prophet able to foretell what's going to be in the future? That happened multiple times. We have documentation of that. We, we spoke about that at great length. How the Torah is able to forecast what's going to happen in the future. Well, how did that do that? Well, the Bible tells Moshe, I'll tell you what happened in the future. Write it down. Um, so, yeah, so it's, you know, so I would... I think maybe what's different about Moshe is that he actually went there. It wasn't like he. It wasn't like he's uh, uh, a prophet. Said, I'll tell you what happened tomorrow, right? But I'm still here today. I'm still existing here today. I suppose right. Moshe was sitting down in a classroom with Rabbi Akiva, twelve hundred years later. So that's maybe why it's different. But yeah, the, you know, I I, I, I agree to the argument that prophecy is this, you know, this migration or, or this uh, um, ability to. Uh, you know, to uh, transcend the limitations of time. 100%. Okay, so let's just uh, quickly go through some of the other definitions that we have of God uh, to kind of just complete the picture of what we define as God and important to distinguish that because to distinguish that because a lot of people say, oh yeah, I believe in God. Well, what does that mean? What does define God? 
Uh, so according, you know, according to the Christian, what if you believe that God is any form, or is capable of taking any form, uh, then according to Judaism, you don't believe in God. You believe in something else, which you want to define God, which will probably give this, you know, the lowercase g. You know, they be the gods of the uh, of the pagans. They also believed in gods, but that's not our God. So what's the Jewish God? You know, the Christian God is idolatry. The Roman and you know, Greek gods and all the pagan gods of yesteryear are idolatry to us. You have people in the world saying, oh, I have faith, I believe in God, but from our perspective, believing in the Jewish God means something very specific. So we already said, we already gave three classifications, no body parts, God's one, not Kate doesn't need any tools to enact his power. Uh, beyond time, not bound or restricted by by time. Uh, but quite simply, it's God is the cause of all entities, right? all matter, all energy. Everything is dependent upon God. Not only that, God sustains them, which is very interesting for us uh, here. Um, you know, you mentioned the idea of the electricity, right? So, what happens when you pull the plug on the lamp? It shuts off. Why? Because it's dependent not only on the electricity to ignite it, to illuminate it the first time, but it continually has the flow of electricity to, to keep it alive, to sustain it. Uh, so a lot of people, or this was a very popular belief uh, back in the day, uh, that, yeah, well, God did it just to create, but then he moved on to bigger and better things. You know? Of course, God's there at the beginning, but then, you know, he abandoned us and now we're kind of on autopilot. Huh? Like clockwork, it just makes a clock and then it goes away, right? Everything just kind of gets turned up. Huh? The autopilot. Well, we have a big problem with that. Uh, Yeah, well, the Jewish definition of God is that God is continually. Um, I gave you an example of, of how this actually plays out. Um, it, it's really wonderful that if we're being recreated every second, uh, that we're being created in the same place. It means it's just as easy for God to recreate me back in my house and my couch as it is in this chair. Uh, it's just that there's the um, most common will of God is to recreate us in the same place that we were. Now, why is that? Because, of course, the Almighty wants us to have a say, wants us to make choices. If he was, mani- he could very easily manipulate us like, uh, like a puppeteer. That's not outside of the realm of possibility. And there are some instances in history, like we'll read about in this week's partnership, about God manipulating Pharaoh. And that happens. But it's very exceedingly rare. So God wants us to have the capacity to make choices. Thus, He recreates us in the same setting as the second prior. But we find several times in history where people were able to traverse great amounts of land very fast. Right? Jacob is traveling, and he has what's called kfitzas haderach. He jumps across the land. He takes like the bullet train. And he's able to travel great distances very fast. How, how does that happen? It's 
like just if God puts them at you know two two x speed or five x speed or <laughs> like anyone on the way just gets mowed down. The answer is is that God creates them here one second, one second later creates them somewhere else. That's just as easy for God. For us, that would be magic, right? How how do you do that? But for God, it's it's just as easy. He's recreating us every second, constantly nourishing us, sustaining us. And he can create us here, the second where we were, or he can make us be created elsewhere. Poof, you know, imagine if I just disappeared right now. <laughs> like, ooh, where did he go? Well, it's not likely to happen because that's not the way the Almighty works. Unless there's a reason for him to change the quote-unquote laws of nature, he's not going to do it. But that does not mean that he lets the laws of nature run amok. Just nature is God's most common will. You know? And for us, once again, it's another symptom of trying to make God relatable to us. We think, oh, well, the amount of resources it would take to try to micromanage the lives of every organism on the planet, right? And every one of the cosmos and all the trillions of stars. And to manipulate all that, there's no way God has the capacity to do that, right? doesn't make sense to put them all on autopilot. Right? Doesn't it make sense to engineer it in a way that it could just function on its own? And, you know, the allocation of God's time. Right? That's that's what we think. It's just so much more efficient to let it run on its own. That's not why I think that. Okay, go ahead, Bernie. No, no, it's just my philosophy. I just feel like we're just little soldiers just playing games with us, you know, letting things happen and then see what it can do with the rest. It's all random. No, that's not what Bernie's saying. But God is, is giving us allowance. That's true. He is giving us allowance. Um, that, but the fact that he cannot keep track of every, every one of us, and we'll talk about this in a second, that God knows us on an individual level. And we, we pray to God, and I've mentioned this before, but the most common word of our prayer is Ata, which means you. Ata. Yeah, you. We talk to God with the supposition that he's listening to us. Aren't there a million other people praying at the same time? Why would he listen to us? Well, our, that question really stems from our mistaken perception that God, God has limited resources. So he, maybe he doesn't, exactly. So it's like, how can God keep track of all these individual prayers and keep track of all of them, right? God is us. Well, we're very hesitant to say that. Um, I'm with Bobby. Yeah, but that. But remember, but, but well, within us and is us is a little bit. It's very important here. I think when we talk about theology, to be very careful with how we define things because we can very easily uh, pivot into something that we would really define as heresy. So to say that God is us, that God takes human form, is very dangerous. That to say that God is very similar to our soul, that's 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 a-okay, like that's what the Talmud says. Um, so the fact that God is within us, it's hard to say that because God's not within us, but to say that the, that the godly influence that we have in our soul is within us, that's very okay to say. Uh, you know what I'm saying? We have, we have, we have okay. to tiptoe here. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, I hear you. Right? Um, so it's very important for, for us to just get you know clarity. And a lot of people say that oh, our soul is a portion of God. You hear people saying that. And it's, 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 it's really heresy to say that. 
because God cannot have any portions. Like with like God can have any parts. The fact that God's you know giving us the, the a billion little parts that God are floating within us that's very dangerous. Thing. Now to say that we have a portion that's similar to God within us that's okay. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> No. Certainly not. We could define consciousness as our soul, which is similar to God. I'm okay with that because that's true. Go ahead. Um, so what it means, what you are saying is when he says, let's make man our image about the soul, what you are saying? Yes. If there is a correlation between man and God, as the Torah says, the man is God, God's image, it's certainly not our body. Our body is not that remarkable. I thought sometimes that it means that uh, he is merciful and he made us to be merciful. Well, that's really what the Torah is about. The Torah is trying to make us, it's trying to make us similar to God. We're told in the Torah, we're told in the Torah that uh, um, to be like God. What does it mean to be like God? What does it mean to, how can we be like God? We're physical, God's spiritual. How can we be like God? We have choice. To do choice, but still, we have choices, and God has choices, but how can we be like God? Huh? Torah is a tool. Right, but it's a tool to get to the source. But how do you do that? How do you, how does man become like God? Allah says that we become givers if we're givers. Okay, but we're still not like God, if, even if we're givers. We're still human givers. Yeah, we have attributes that are like God, but how do we become like God? The answer is, I already hinted this to this earlier, is that if we become more soulful, right, with giving, with good attributes, with Torah, but that kind of changes our reality from being primarily physical to being hopefully primarily more and more spiritual. And God's spiritual. We can be spiritual. We can be like God. Simple. So the eight times in the Torah that we're told, be like God, walk in the ways of God, what we're essentially being told is become more spiritual, less physical. Like Thus, and Moses became entirely spiritual. He's the top of the ten levels. We start at the bottom. We're almost entirely physical. And there is a lot in between. And hopefully we, you know, in, in this discussion and in our lives, we will progressively get higher and higher in this totem pole, in this on the scale, on this ladder, from being entirely physical, hopefully, to be primarily, you know, or predominantly, or uh, decidedly spiritual as well. Maybe, maybe we can reach par. If our, if our physical reality and spirituality are equal, we're way ahead of the game. Isn't the top-level prophecy, isn't that dependent on the whole of Israel reaching a certain level? Uh, yes, but that's a good question. Ourselves, but we couldn't prophesy unless the whole of Israel elevated, and that's what enabled the prophets to exist. And when the whole of Israel, on average, declined, and that took away that ability. So, I actually have a little bit later on when we talk about prophecy and what prophecy is, and how prophecy is essentially this wavelength that we create um, with God via our soul. Well, we should be able to reach that today as well. Um, I came up with two theories why we can't, because we know we can't achieve prophecy now. Um, either because our souls are less powerful. Right? As time progresses, our souls regress. And by the way, the fact that our bodies or our physical world is progressing, uh, that may be in direct proportion to the regression of our souls. 
right? Because if your soul is less powerful, it makes sense that your body is going to be more powerful because these are exact opposites of each other. And by the way, what happens when someone studies Torah? The Talmud says something very bizarre. I've got to write this down here. Tad into my notes. Just, you know the way my mind works, right? Um, <laughs> the Torah says something like this. Sure. The Talmud says something bizarre. It says that the Torah weakens someone. Torah weakens someone. So the more, huh? Well, exactly. Well, why? Because it empowers the soul. Stronger soul, weaker body. Because you can't have both because they're opposites. Oh, yeah. More Torah, more empowered soul. But, but, but by definition, you're going to have to compromise. You cannot have both. You cannot have both. That's why... Um, <coughs> Um, there is, I'm trying to find uh, where it is, but there's another source uh, that says that if someone, it's a folly to think that someone could say, oh, I'll get all of Torah and I get also tons and tons and tons of cash, you know, and tons and tons of physical amenities. Because essentially they're opposites. It doesn't mean that we have to. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to abandon our our material pursuits, because remember, our material pursuits can also be spiritual. But it means that if we want to have physical pursuits, which are different than material pursuits, right? Material is just it is what it is, right? Physical means it's bodily oriented. If if that's the primary focus of our lives, then by definition, right, it has to be that our spiritual uh, uh, desires are going to be curtailed in direct proportion. So we have a weaker soul, thus we have a stronger body. Thus, our soul, right, even though it's capable of, uh, if it were to be exposed of having an interaction with the spiritual, but it's not quite powerful enough to have prophecy. And that's theory one. Theory two is what you said, is that prophecy is not just a achievement of the individual, it's also achievement of the community, right? Because imagine what kind of a boon it would be to have a prophet, a prophet nowadays. You know, we have so many challenges facing our society, facing the world at large. You know, if you had a prophet who was your next door neighbor, think about how easy it would be to game the stock market, for example. We wouldn't believe the prophet. Well, the the, the Jewish prophet has to demonstrate his. Yeah, so prophets today are, are kooks, right? Because yeah. there's no real prophets. But if yeah, we had a real prophet... Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we still have some of them today, you know. <laughs> Jerusalem syndrome. They're everywhere in Jerusalem, right? Um, but theoretically, if you had a prophet who lived next door, right, that's tremendously powerful, right? We spoke about this in the past here as well, that... Saul went to visit Samuel, the prophet, to find out where his lost donkeys were. You lose your donkeys, you go to the prophet, he tells you where they are. Oh, and Samuel tells him, oh, by the way, you're also the king of Israel. But that's what people would do. And Maimonides spends a long time in his introduction to Mishnah explaining why this had to happen. There had to be that this, that 
prophets provide not only spiritual guidance, but guidance in our lives and our day to day lives as well. You know, which field should you, should, you know? Should I go into law? Should I go into medicine? Should I go into business? Should I go into accounting? It's a vexing question for a lot of people. Go to the prophet. The prophet tells you what to do. Right? But we have to be meritorious to actually deserve that, and we're not. Therefore, we don't have it. Therefore, even the great individual who's maybe on his own capable of prophecy, but the collective is not worthy, and therefore the, the individual is curtailed. Well, it's not. It, it's not. It's not a. Sin, it's not suffering. It's just that's the reality. I mean, it, it's, you know, the fact that someone is not a prophet doesn't mean that they're that, that they're being punished. It's not punitive, right? It's just that they cannot achieve that. They, they cannot climb that mountain. They just can't. Is is uh, Moshiach supposed to have that ability? Yes. So that's going to change everything. That's right. Um, yes. That's the, the short answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we don't recognize Go ahead. Uh, should we be saying, using the garbage, of, since we don't know what God is, we cannot conceptualize it in our Well, we could define it. So, um, no, so it, it's going to be this, it's going to be this, this, um, I think science provides us some uh, examples of this as well, where you have something that you know is true, uh, but it is the opposite of something else that you know is right. true as well. So I think maybe we should be saying what God, we know that you know, God is not a body, but when we start to see it, use the verbiage God is, then you're, then you're putting more of a thumb on. Well, it is some, yeah, so we, we're trying to give definitions, even though those definitions seem to be... Uh, I mean, I know in Torah it does say God is one. True. Right, so now if it relates directly to the Torah, but if it doesn't, should we be saying God is you're saying, say saying what God's God not. Is. That's right. Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, I, I'm, 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 what I'm doing over here with my de- definitions of God is just taking, let's say, what how Maimonides defines him, how Nachmanides, how classic has been classically defined, and just you know working with that. For example, Maimonides says, "What God, only God is worthy of our loyalty and servitude." That's one of his definitions of God. Uh, what he's saying is, is that everything that may be wonderful. Like the star, the sun, the moon, the stars, the constellations, the galaxies, you know, all that is, is really fantastic. You know, uh, I read recently on the internet that if you were to take our solar system, and how, how big is our solar system in comparison to the, to the Milky Way galaxy? Minuscule. Tiny, right? Tiny. So it's like, that it's roughly the size of a, of, of a quarter, like a quarter in the United States which is just mind-boggling. And just that thought, like, really inspires awe in us. And we can make the mistake that was made in the past, in antiquity, of saying, wow, look look at this wonderful creations of God. Let's give them some honor. That's a big mistake. You know, so one of the definitions that we give to God is that we don't stop at a station prior to the final destination, so to speak. You know, we don't stop at other aspects of creation and accord value to that to them. Uh, just quickly, you know, uh, God is involved with us on an individual level. We already mentioned that as well. 
um, and God is not, does not have any limitations. So, so, the, so these are what we call the definitions of God. Uh, does this give us faith? Good question. Like if we are able to believe in these definitions of God, is that one of the levels of Amuna? Maybe. So what's the advantage of having faith? Well, 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 what is faith? Is faith, faith maybe, maybe more than one thing? Is Amuna one thing? Or is it a whole spectrum of things? And where we fit in along that spectrum really is a reflection of who we are as individuals. So, you know, I think that even if we have a clear understanding of what God is, that's very theoretical. Like we said, it's hard for us. Go ahead. Well, she was talking, it came something into my mind. Uh, if God doesn't have a body, what we know for us is, is a power, something else. But it came to my mind, you know, like us, he healed, he taught, and uh, in Genesis, when he came to Abraham, the three angels, uh, if I am not mistaken, I read that one of them was God that he well, no, those no, those are those are angels, but but I, I think maybe what you're trying to ask is that the Torah does use um, no, descriptions. Uh, Go ahead. The, in the soul that we are talking, God has a soul too, and He's a spirit. Um, he hear, He talk, and you know, and we are talking about the soul inside us that we don't know how it is. is yes. Yeah, so my Maimonides addresses your question huh? literally on the first page. Uh, the question of what's known as an anthropomorphism, which means that if you look at the Torah, the Torah says that the eyes of God are watching over Israel. Mm-hmm. Or the Almighty came out of Egypt with a raised arm, Yad Ramah. You know, so what does that mean? Uh, God doesn't have any arms, it doesn't have any eyes. So what does it mean? Uh, so the Torah is written for whom? Who's the Torah written for? For us, right? So we have to conceptualize. It's a way of conceptualizing. Exactly. Exactly. So these are crushes that we have to use to try to take the lessons of the Torah, the Torah trying to impart and make it relatable to us. You know, we all have a, a, some sort of concept of what God looks like in our own individual things. You know, of course, a lot of it has to do with what we see on television and all those other. Influences over the years, but you do have, you have to have some concept of this. That well, that's the problem. This is exactly the problem that God doesn't look like anything. No, but you 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 may know that on 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 one side, but you have to think of them in some other way to to. So what our goal is to try to have some sort of relationship with God, some sort of conceptualization of God. That does not involve a, you know, giving God a physical form. That is what these ten levels are. It's, uh, it's, huh? Well, doesn't somebody ask God? He says, "I am that I am." So why can't He just be like the world? Just is. Because once again, the wind is something that we can measure with physical tools, right? Yeah, I hear that. 
So let, let's talk about uh, about another way I think to, to approach this discussion. Um, is it possible for someone that has emuna to sin? Let's let's let's, let's even dumb this down. Is it possible for someone to, that has faith sin, to sin? Is that possible? Yes. To miss the mark, yes. How's it possible? We're human. We're levels. Not in that moment. moment they sin. No. They're not thinking about God. No. Oh, so the, so you're saying it's not possible for someone to have faith, that has faith to sin because either you have faith or you're sin. They're mutually exclusive. But it's not about defining a person's not have faith. I'm saying in that moment. Okay, but that person at that moment. Absent. In that moment, no. So what do you guys say? You guys seem to disagree. It's uh, possible, but what it is, in a blink we disconnect, and then we sin. Okay, so, right but away, at that moment, so you're right, with Dan. Right away, so you're with we Dan. React and we connect, so we can't, so if we are cognizant of God, we cannot sin. So theoretically, if we can become cognizant of God at all times, we'd never sin, correct? Right. Well, in spite of your cognizance, even knowing that you're saying because oh, so you're saying like this. So it's, well, Bernie said, I think you might, might both be right. So you're saying that yes, you could be aware theoretically of God existing, but it's not at the forefront of your thoughts and consciousness. It's not real, not tangible, and therefore you can say all the time. No, in spite of your faith, you're gonna you're gonna fail at times. Right. So I think what you guys are both talking about is different levels of faith. Because your level of faith that you're describing, it's possible to never have any lapses in faith and yet sin all the time. What Dan is talking about is different kind of faith where it's, it's so real, it's so, uh, you know, it's so tangible, the idea of faith that how could you possibly go in opposition, right? It would be insane for someone to say, I really want to go inside a fire to see what it's like. It's insanity, Correct. If the thought of transgressing God would be akin to jumping into a fire, which it would be for some people of advanced levels of faith, then they would never do it unless they forgot that for a second and jumped in the fire. Why else would someone do that? We find in the Talmud like this. Uh, A person does not sin unless a spirit of insanity enters them. So people that sin are insane. <laughs> right? Why? What does that even mean? It means that if someone really understands, really lives with the idea of emuna as being totally real, then to sin is insane, just like it's insane to jump in a fire. Well, then you were you were you tripped or fell into the fire. That's different. You know, and, and people aren't held liable. In most cases, for what when they sinned, they don't have something to know about. But someone, if someone is really aware of the fact that doing something against God is probably the dumbest thing you could possibly do, even dumber than jumping in a fire, why would they ever do it? The answer is, is that they had temporary insanity. That for a second they for they, either for a second they jumped in the fire, or they forgot that there was fire there, or they forgot that fire was hot. Either way, it's it's an act of insanity. How does someone become so insane? How do you do? The answer is, like we said earlier, because we're born insane. 
we're born crazy. We have this physical body, this physical reality that in our minds is real, is lasting, is more true than the, phys- than the spiritual reality. So it's not a fire at all. It's a candy. It's ice cream. Right? We're insane. And the myth, the fantasy of this world, of the physical world, right, that captures us. And we take something that's not real and make it real. And by doing that, we forget what is real and make that not real. And that's an act of insanity. And that's why it's hard for us to understand God, because we're insane. Right? We think that body is real, body is lasting, body is true. And then, yeah, yes, there's idea, there's faith, there's God, there's soul, there's spiritual. Yeah, it's something there, whatever. You know, that's, that, that's true, but it's, it's not real. You know, it's not, you know, it's not here in front of us, you know. That's our insanity. And in truth, someone like Moses, who's all the way at the other end of the spectrum, to him... The physical doesn't matter. The physical is like, yeah, yeah, you have a physical body, but so what? Like, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's a the- that's a theoretical thing to him. He's all the way on the opposite side of the spectrum. Um, by the way, someone mentioned Torah earlier. Mitzvahs. Every mitzvah is an act of a soul and an act that our body wouldn't normally want to do. Uh, Torah, right? You say Torah. So, so many mitzvahs, so many laws. You look at the Torah, it's directly designed uh, in parallel to who we are. We're told in the Talmud, 248 mitzvahs corresponding to 248 limbs. 365 negative mitzvahs corresponding either to the 365 days or 365 sinews. Right? There was a direct parallel between what we are and what the Torah is and their opposites. And if we adopt the Torah, we change ourselves, we turn ourselves around entirely. Right? We neuter the soul, the body, and thus we expose the soul. We unstitch our eyeballs. We unsheath our antennas. All the examples that we've given till now. We expose our soul via disruption of body. Right? That's how you fix this form of insanity. Right? Torah is to make us sane. But why do we have opposition to Torah? What's the opposition? The opposition is because the body is so dominant and it fools us, it hoodwinks us into thinking that it's real. And the Torah is, whoa, whoa, whoa. like Torah, Shabbos, uh, study Torah, you know, uh, charity. You know, charity is, why is charity challenging for us? Because it's a great example of us choosing soul over body. And our body protests and resists and doesn't like that. And we feel our body. If you didn't feel your body, you know, you were dominated by your soul, no one would have any problem giving charity. No one would have any problem shutting down on shop. It's not doing 39 prohibited acts. Of course. The problem is that our body, our body resists, our body rebels. Right? Our insanity reigns supreme. And thus, we can go our whole lives with mismatched realities. The, the, the spiritual reality, 
which indeed is real. And by the way, what happens when you die? Well, not only that, the entire house of cards collapse, collapses. The reality of the fact that your soul and your spiritual half is all that matters, right, that becomes undeniable. Because your body, what happens to your body? It's put in the ground, it's forgotten about, it disintegrates, it's gone. Well, what happened to a life of investing in your body? It's, it's all gone. It's, it's gone, it disappears. And your soul lives in perpetuity. Your spiritual realm, your spiritual half of your existence continues. But the, you know, the, the, the curtain, so to speak, of this facade removed. The fantasy is, is banished. Suddenly, what happens then? Right? You realize that, you're insane, that you were insane. That you realize that everything that you put as a priority in your life... Everything that your body said, oh, this is what's important. This is what we should spend time. This is what we should value. This is our, our priorities. The, you know, this is how we you know, should project our lives. All that was a waste of time. Now you're dead. right? What do you have now? You don't have the you anymore. Well, you don't have the physical you, but you still have the spiritual you. And suddenly that's all that matters, and suddenly your realities are now true and now aligned. Right? But... You, you know, the, the regrets of living a life right, with such falsehood being the dominating guide force of your life is, is, is terrible. By the way, just now that we went there, right? Um, the, what's the idea of retribution, of punishment? We talk about spiritual punishment. So you know, you know what the Christians say? They say burning in fire, right? Your body burning in fire. That we don't have body burning in fire. Why? It's another rare example of trying to make everything physical, right? You made God physical, you made punishment physical. We don't have that. You would have to come back to this world and learn the same lesson all over again. Well, yeah, but to us, we're very comfortable in this world. That sounds, that sounds comforting, right? Uh-huh. To us, that sounds wonderful. Right? But, but the true be- answer is that the, it's the anguish. It's the anguish of missed opportunities. It's much more painful than you know, hitting someone with... Uh, you know, with uh, with with a, with a whip, much more painful the thought of what could, what you could have done with your opportunities, and how, you know, you just ignored it. You know, you just you were blind. You're you're just living your life blind. You're just, you know, being totally commandeered by your body, and that's all that matters. And, and but if you think about it logically, it doesn't make any sense. We all know we're all gonna die. You know, and people have been trying to resist it. You know, we're trying to push it off. We're trying to, because we're terrified of what that means. Because we know what that means, right? Everything that we're investing towards is it's all going. It's like I'll tell you guys, I'll give you an example here. You have a, uh, you know, now with this whole uh, climate change thing, right? So there's going to be these beaches that are going to disappear, right? Maybe debatable, <laughs> but let's say that were to be true. Would anyone go and say, I want to spend $5 million to build a wonderful beach home on a property that's going to be underwater in a couple of years from now? Buy it in Arizona. Buy the property in Arizona. Well, you say that would be a better alternative. So there might be a beach then. 
<laughs> but imagine you knew that every year, that every year the water is creeping another foot, another three feet closer towards the mainland. Are you going to build a beachfront home that's going to be swamped? In a couple, of course not. Well, it's doing it now, but we're doing it now as well with our whole lives. We're investing. We're our focus, our time, and our attention, our thoughts, our right, our ambitions are all towards building this wonderful house mm-hmm. well, who's on the beachfront. Who's to say that if if in, there's a soul that and when that happens, when the soul takes over, that it's any better than the physical aspect of your life? Well, that let's assume that your question is a good question. <laughs> right, let's assume you're right. But that's an unknown, right? Your question is like... Well, we know that the status of our soul after we die is unknown. Let's assume you're right, okay? The status of the body is known. The status of our physical uh, ambitions is for sure unknown. So you're saying, well, who's to say that the soul actually, the consciousness and the spiritual reality of, uh, uh, of our lives uh, continues? But let's assume you're right. That's a doubt. That's an unknown. What is a definite known is that our body and the you know and what we invest in our body that does not last. So even if it would were to only be something that's a doubt, even if there be an uncertainty as to what happens with our spiritual re- reality, that's still better than the certainty of knowing that our spirit that our physical reality is all is all done for. So I'm saying let's assume that you're right. I'm saying it's a good question. I think it is a good question. But even if assuming that the conclusion of your question is that, yes, we can never know. I think we can know. But even if we, even if we can know, let's assume that, 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 that that's a good question, right? We cannot know, let's say, what happens to our soul after, uh, after we die. But we do know for sure what happens to our body after we die. Yes, so what's going to happen to all those uh, pectoral muscles, yeah. right? And all the fancy cars, you know, and, and you know, in a fancy house, and our career, all the things that we value here in our body, they're all done for. Well, on the other hand, this could be a figment of our physical body deciding these. We can't end here. There's got to be something else. So you're saying we have to find evidence to the well, soul. But I'm saying even evidence. if we don't find evidence, well, I think we do. We will find evidence. I think there's an, there's an abundance of evidence. But even if we don't find evidence, it's still better, right? The, the uncertainty. Yeah. So of you the, think that there's going to be something else afterwards? Yeah. That's right. And I, and I make the argument, by the way, that once we accept the premise of God, we have to accept the premise of an afterlife, of the soul continuing to exist. Why? Because if you accept the premise of God, you cannot believe in a God that is petty, right? Um the idea of God trying to make us deliberately miserable, that doesn't make any sense. Like, it, it doesn't make sense for such an intelligence to have such petty desires, right? So there's got to be a way of, of this being square, right? There's got to be some sort of realm in which there is justice. This world is not a realm of justice. That's something we made up, this justice. Yeah, but... Uh, no, no, but... Uh, if God exists, would there not be justice? Well, That's an important question. So yes, so that's I, I would. So let's take those two. Let's take those two statements as being true. There should be justice. There is injustice in this world. Well, what does that imply? That there might be justice in the next. There must world. be justice in another world. Uh-huh. Means means once you accept the premise of God of a just God, which 
the alternative is, is, is even more difficult to, to be at peace with. Once you accept that premise, there must be another, another, another existence. Well, how, why the next existence should there be justice? Why not now? Why do you have to wait? Till, oh, uh, good question. <laughs> well, everyone agrees that there is no justice here. Well, why not? Wouldn't that simplify things? Well, the answer is that if there was justice here, then there would be no purpose here. The purpose can only exist because there is this doubt, because there is this confusion, because there is this insanity, because there is this blindness, because there is this dynamic of body and soul. If there was justice in this world, every time someone made a mistake and sinned, missed the mark, like you like to say, Janet, right? every, every act of temporary insanity would come with a jolt of retribution. And then what would happen? Would you make that mistake next time? No. God wants there to be a conflict of body and soul so that there's choice, opportunity for greatness or opportunity for evil. But That's the idea of free will. Evil on a grand scale here, we don't seem to, to have the backbone or, or the whatever you want to call it to call it into question. Well, some people do. Ezekiel uh, 18.4 talks about justice guy line up. Every individual who fills him and has faith on him, he says what to do to be justice in this world. Even people that's in the justice, yeah, so, if we want to obey... So, yeah, so, we're, so we justice. are told to pursue justice. justice, right? So we try. Uh, however, what's also interesting is that we're also told to not <coughs> try to play God because we cannot see the full picture, right? So... For example, you learn the, the laws, the Jewish laws of capital punishment, and you find that the number one, the overarching motivation is to try to avoid to give capital punishment because we don't want to jump to such conclusions. Because we cannot play God in our pursuit of justice. We have to pursue justice, but we can't assume that we're able to do that. Um, but I forgot how we got here, as usual. Uh, uh, but... Uh, one thing we do know for sure is that there's no justice in this world. Thus, if we want to accept the idea of just God, we have to thus conclude there's got to be some other other world where that can happen. Now, um, I'm just saying logically we can come to that conclusion, but we have proof, you know, we, we have the Torah. The Torah says this in a thousand different ways, uh, that the existence of, of, the other, of this other realm. Uh, now, but I think even if we didn't have that, even if your question stood as a question, we still should take the uncertainty uh, versus the definite uh, or the definitiveness of the futility of investing in our body. You know, uh, if I told you, hey, I have two investments opportunities. One of them, I'm not sure what's going to be, right? Maybe it'll go up, maybe it'll go down. The other one, I know for sure it's going down to zero. Which one are you opting for? It's still a better bet to opt for... Uh, you know, you know, to opt for the wishful thinking—it's fifty percent probability of success versus zero percent probability. Yeah, no, of well, it's more than fifty percent because you have the best investors of all time, the most brilliant investors of all time, all of them, you know, stacking on one side. So you know, it's more—it's more than just fifty percent probability. I say it's a hundred percent probability. You know, but it, you know, there's evidence to it being a winning bet. But if the only other alternative is guaranteed to go down to zero, right, it's certainly not worth your, your, your focus. But once again, this is hard for us to do. This is life. Life is we have a reality 
That's the physical reality. We all know it's going down to zero. We all know that. That we all know, but we don't live by that. Yeah. Right? We're hoodwinked. We're insane. We're blind. Right? We're told, we're, we're, we're engineered to pursue that avenue of investing. And that's where the tension of the free will comes into play. Uh, and the growth through our faith, through Amuna, is becoming less blind, less insane. Right? By changing our focus, our investment, if you will, from being investing our lives into the physical to predominantly, uh, progressively more and more into the spiritual. And by the way, the best tool for that is the Torah. I say, Rabbi, the Torah tells me not to eat all these foods that I want to eat. Well, isn't that a way of telling your body no? Thus, mitigating, limiting, attenuating its power and dominion over you? Even if we were to say that, well, it's all arbitrary, right? The laws of the Torah, let's assume that that's a correct argument. What is wrong with eating pig? It's perfectly healthy, it's perfectly fine, there's nothing wrong with it, right? Let's assume you're right. Let's assume that there's nothing cosmically wrong or even health-wise wrong about eating pig. Let's assume that's right. But is it denying our body? Is it denying our physical? Yes. Correct? Every time you deny your body, you are weakening your body. And thus, directly proportionate to that, you are empowering your soul. So even if all the laws of the Torah were just there to make our body miserable and weren't exactly tailored to limit our body, but it was just random, right? The Torah tells us these random things to make our life miserable, our body life miserable. Even if that were to be true, it would still be invaluable. Because as a result, we become more spiritual. So it's a, it's, well, to me, it's a self-discipline. And self-discipline is good. Self-discipline is, is, is inordinately good. Uh, you know, you a chocolate bar is good, right? 25 chocolate bars. It's even better. <laughs> it's even better. <laughs> right? You know, but it, it, is our life about the pursuit of chocolate bars? Is that what it's really all about? What happens if someone spends all their time chasing those proverbial chocolate bars and not living life for what it's, you know, the more difficult to obtain uh, aspects of life. You know, don't, don't focus on that because chocolate bars are wonderful. Right? Wouldn't the responsible thing to say, okay, fine, have a few chocolate bars, but just a few, right? Don't, don't spend your whole life on that because then you're missing out on some bigger, more important, more valuable experiences. But similarly, like, if the Torah was just about self-discipline, it would still be invaluable. What's actually nice about the, the, the Torah is that it's actually tailor-made, right? That same quote-unquote engineer that engineered us to desire this physical reality and to put that in the forefront of what we invest our lives in also told us, by the way, I have 248 positive recipes and 365 negative recipes that if you follow them to the T, you're guaranteed to flip that dynamic. Is it easy? No. Once again, because we're engineered to, that it should not be easy. 
But all you got to do is follow those recipes and then you're guaranteed to change your reality. Isn't that nice? You know, would, would you be intrigued if I told you uh, that, you know, no, no one, none of us want to die, right? So we all want to live. So if I told you, hey, there's 248 recipes that are guaranteed to ensure that you will live forever. Would that not intrigue you? Well, you get to the recipes and you find, oh, this is really hard to make. <laughs> it's not one of those quick and easy recipes that you just mac and cheese. Uh, this, <laughs> this is nuanced, right? This is a lot of time and effort, you know? But is it, is it, is it worth it for the outcome? Maybe. You know? But then you got 248 of those. Plus 365 things that you can't do. But what's the payout, right? What, well, you know, what, the payout is you live forever. Well, that's exactly what the Torah is. It's 248 instructions and 365 prohibitions, but the payout is you'll live forever. Right? I mean, of course, your body will die because everyone's body dies. But your soul, the part of you that lives forever, that, that's eternal, will be complete. And it's a way to invest your life and your attention, your focus, into something that lasts. Isn't that valuable? Isn't that invaluable? It's incredible. That's what the Torah is. Pretty powerful. So let's start with the bottom levels of faith here. Right? We talk about these lofty ideas. Well, where do we start from? So I say we start from what I call voter ID, voter ID registration faith. Uh, which is the most common faith, I think, that we have in, in, in the world, which is people say, I have faith, don't ask me questions, I don't want to spend time thinking about it. And just like when you fill out your ID, it says, uh, you know, optional, you want to say, are you Hispanic, are you Caucasian, are you American Indian, are you Asian, right? It's just one of the things that you check, the box that you check. It's just who you are, but it's not really the focus of your life. Uh, and... You know, that person is not an atheist. That person is not even agnostic. That person has faith. But from the Jewish perception, that person is really no different. Right? The person who is the atheist, the person who is, has quote-unquote faith, how do they live their lives? The same way. They're identical in how they behave. It's not like the person who has faith has this entirely different perception of the world, entirely different priorities and, and focuses, and, right? They're the same, right? So from the Imuna spectrum, right, Imuna is measured by how someone behaves with respect to what they believe. So with regards to Imuna, they both have zero. Not being an atheist means nothing with regards to Muna. You'll behave the same way you would be if you were an atheist. So if our faith does not reflect in our behavior, our faith right, doesn't really matter. It's just something that we, yeah, we, it's a box that we check. It doesn't really matter. Uh, and I say most people that have faith, most people in America do have faith, but most people also don't actually invest time into thinking about what that means and what that implies and you know, what ought to result from that reality. So they have no amuna, but they do have faith. And that's a good thing, 
Uh, but is it a Muna? It's not. Um, when we're told that we have a mitzvah to have a Muna, we're also told, oh, there's 365 ways to have a Muna uh, in, the, in the form of rejection of idolatry. And there's 248 ways to actualize your Muna with behavior. Right? Remember we made that link to the beginning? If faith, if a Muna is at the center, all of Torah is an outgrowth of that, what does that mean? That means what we're demanded of is to have our faith, our emuna, be manifest in behavior. And if it's not manifest in behavior, then it's not really worth anything. We're demanded something much greater. We're demanded a life change, a, a life perception change. And that can only be with emuna. That can only be if our behavior is going to be altered as a result of our faith. So here's a question. Go ahead. Can an atheist have as valuable or as good a life as a observant uh, person who believes, you know, believes in God and knows God? Uh, um, let's. Uh, why don't you uh, elaborate your question? Well, basically, I mean, is an atheist life as valuable? We don't assign value in life. That's not one of the things that we do. Um, and even an atheist has a soul, right? Well, um, and even the atheist... I don't think an atheist believes that they have a soul. Yeah, but it doesn't change the reality that they do, right? If, um, if I don't believe that I have a heart, I still have a heart, right? Yes, yes. I don't believe it, but it doesn't change, yes, right? Yeah, but even but I never cut out never cut out my heart. Yeah, theoretically you could. Well, I mean, you can feel it. You can. Yeah, hear but it, you can uh, yeah. But if I don't believe I have a, uh, a, a kidney, right? That's something you can feel. You have it. That doesn't mean it doesn't change. It means the reality doesn't change. Um, now, someone who's an atheist um, is someone who is disrupted by their soul more than someone that has faith. I would make the argument. Um, why would someone be an atheist? I don't know. My, I have one daughter-in-law who, I mean, she's a, she's a, they came down, they were here from Ohio last week with the kids, and she, she's Jewish, but I was born Jewish. And she's just adamant, start with this, with this uh, being an atheist, because she's, we have two twin boys, you know, she's not anxious to, uh, well, what's the motivation? Think about it. Let's, let's try. Let's try to dig deep here. She says her mother was born, was brought up conservative. So, Bernie, you have a daughter that's an atheist. Okay, so let's let's try to um, I can answer. Huh? From my, I mean, I was an evangelical atheist to the age of forty. <laughs> yeah, but but there was, but, no, there was no. I didn't see any uh, evidence. But, 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 but an atheist is someone who is disturbed by the fact that other people believe in God, correct? Yes. Yeah, Why would that disturbed. be disturbing? Why? Because Think I about they that. Were because you were idiots, idiots, is what she said. Well, idiots. Because I think they're. Because I thought they were. Professor of biology at uh, some little college in Ohio. Yeah, but 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 it's 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 important. Why would it be so disturbing? Like, why is it why, disturbing if you're to someone? You're walking down the street in downtown Houston, and you see a schizophrenic talking to himself. 
That's how I thought everyone driving to the churches on Sunday morning were. They all, he's insane. He's talking to himself. I just want to say that to him. I was like, dude, you do that every Sunday. Like, you talk to someone who's not there. That's why I saw it. I found something for our daughter-in-law so we could get the Jewish boys' education. And they do have humanistic uh, Judaism, which is like a cultural Judaism thing. You know, it's not messianic. Okay, but let me ask you a question. Do you think most atheists really engage in a genuine and fair and sincere pursuit of truth? What does that matter? <laughs> they, just, well, she they just don't think about it. They don't. It's not uh, an issue. Boy, she was. Uh, oh God, we almost have. You know, almost we almost have. You got to bring her over now. here. You got to bring yeah. her over here. I got to meet these people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Bernie, I heard somebody say one time about an atheist that they said, "Okay, you really believe you're an atheist? Go spit on the Torah." <laughs> well, they would not do that. that. Well, not do that. that. But uh, she's just. Uh, she uh, she likes to be negative about everything. Yeah, but I, I, but I, I, I want to I lay down a theory. That's in a second, Deborah. Um, I want to lay down a theory that I have, um, and that the motivation for the, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the argumentation or trying to prove the non-existence of something doesn't make any sense. It means if someone ought to be an atheist, that ought not to matter. Right? Because why crusade against the existence of something? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, I think that even atheists have souls, and even atheists are confronted with the problem that they have some sort of innate uh, rooting in, in God that they don't want to have. I mean, they too are torn by the conflict of body and soul. And one way to make that very easy is to say you're an atheist. Because if you're an atheist, if God in your world doesn't exist, that makes your life much easier to live. I mean, remember, all humans, right, we are trying to minimize pain. And the existence of God can be very painful to us. Why? I mean, it means that we're smaller. It means that we're, you know, uh, it means that, that there's this oversight. It means that there's retribution. It means that there's justice. It means, right, we're not in control. That's very painful for a lot of people. Uh, one way to alleviate the pain is to declare that you're an atheist. Uh, so it's not necessarily a product of, of real investigation matter. It's just, a, it's just a solution to a problem that you have when you have pain. And, it, and once you're an atheist, it's very, it's, you know, the life is much easier. Um, huh? Unless, unless you're in a foxhole. They say, yeah. if you're in a foxhole, there's no atheist. Yeah, but uh, some people say, even if I was a foxhole, I would still be an atheist. You know? But, but, but the, the, the passion with which someone engages in their crusading against the existence of God really doesn't make any sense, logically. But I think that it's indeed just a reaction to pain. Because our life is painful, right? Because we have conflicting entities uh, that causes problems for us. So if you want to minimize that, you make the declaration you're an atheist, and voila, it's 
very easy. Um, Deborah, you had a comment. Well, I would say that they, they would fall into the same category of faith. They just have faith. Yeah, if you ask them, that, sure. And they, it's, it's, it's manifest in their behavior, but that's because, it means it's, I agree that, that you know, probably should add this in over here to talk about this at this point. Uh, but um, the Talmud talks about what's called mitzvah anashim milumada. means you could, you, could, you could do but not believe, right? It means it's, it's a little bit, yeah, you can behave at a road. Now, what's the problem with behaving at a road, right? You can put on film, right? You can pray three times a day, eat only kosher, but not actually have any, you know, dynamic relationship with God. And that's problematic as well. So it's not just about, it's not about be, your faith, your, your, the existence of God being manifest in your behavior. It's it, it being real in your life. Um, the Talmud says that the, the punishment, so to speak, for someone who does mitzvahs out of rote is worse than someone who's doing idolatry. Why? Because you were there, you were so close, but you didn't actually let it affect you. So maybe we could add another level, maybe, maybe it's 11 levels of faith, where the faith is manifesting your behavior, but even the faith and the behavior are both just a product of, you're just paying lip service, you're not actually doing anything. It's not really who you are, it's not changing who you are. It's just uh, behavior that you were trained to do, and you're just, you know, you're just a robot. It's a low feeling. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible to exactly. Um, okay, so so we have these ten levels. Um, knowledge, but not feeling. Huh? Has the knowledge? No, but not even. I wouldn't even call it knowledge. It's just knowledge. faith. It's just faith. it's 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 accessible only if it's addressed. Only if you ask someone, do they have faith? Will the faith ever? you know, cross their, their view. Um, of course, in Judaism, we're trying to achieve what's called a muna, but not only a muna, was what was once um, labeled as a muna chaya, which means the muna is alive, right? Um, where it's, it's dynamic, it's real, it's, it really takes over your existence. So um, lo- first level, lowest level faith, you know, it's a faith that even most Gentiles have today. Um, it's not reflected at all in your behavior. We find about a- Asaph. Do you think Asaph had faith? Esau, the biblical Esau, did he yeah. have faith or not? Of course. of course he had faith. He's the son of Isaac and Rebekah. Of course he had faith. Um, but what kind of faith did he have? He had faith that was theoretical. It was in his mind only. It wasn't in any way manifest in his behavior. Uh, we, we talked about uh, that when we spoke about Tefillin here. Right, filling a representative of mitzvahs at large, that there's one on the head and there's one on the heart. There's a vast chasm between those two. Your theoretical, what you know in your mind, what's abstract, is very distant than what you actually behave, than how you feel, how you live your life. Tefillin represents the goal of mitzvahs at large to try to bridge the, that gap, to try to change the theoretical faith and make it real to make it alive, to make it dynamic. Esau, we, we find about Nimrod, right? Nimrod, one of the villains in Abraham's time. The Talmud says about him that Yodea esribona umaskavan limrodvo. He knew God 
and intentionally try to rebel against God. Well, how does, how does that work? How is someone cognizant of God yet trying to rebel against that? Right? It's possible to have faith in the mind and not have faith in the heart. That's demonstrated by Nimrod, demonstrated by a lot of people. You have faith. Well, if you actually do the math, if you actually do the logical uh, um, results, the implications of faith really demand that we live a different life. How is it possible for someone to have faith in sin? The answer is, is that, yeah, they have faith, but it's not tangible. It's not alive. It's not, it's not real. It's theoretical. When we have mitzvahs, mitzvahs create the crossover, right? Your ideology, what you know in your mind, crosses over to your behavior. We have so many mitzvahs because it's so difficult to take what we know in our mind and make it true. And that's what we have in the Torah. The Torah is what we would perhaps say is, is, is the delineation of Jewish faith. To take a mitzvah, to take a, a theoretical idea, make it real. To behave in a way that's different. Uh, now, but the faith, the faith of our mind, how could that be, or maybe this is the way to say it, what creates the faith in their mind? Is it something which is the result of evidence or proof? or as a result of tradition. So yes, we have faith in our mind. Hopefully that's going to be trans, uh, transferred to faith in our heart, in our behavior. But what's the faith in our mind? What's that based upon? So I think this is level two and three, uh, where we can have faith in our mind because of tradition. You know, you went to school, Jewish school, your parents told you the Seder, you read the Torah, you know, you just believed your parents, which, by the way, is not such an insignificant level. You know, if you actually think about um, what we've spoken about here in the past, uh, the idea of the national revelation being so significant, right? Anything that we don't see, that we don't interact with personally, but we know as true, is only because of tradition, only because of we believe what someone else told us. So the existence of anything that we have, we, like most of us, I'm sure some of us have been to China, I'm sure Vitaly's been to China, right? But I've never been there, but I know it's true. Well, how do I know it's true? Because, you know, because like we've done this math before, like it's not possible to get a collaboration of millions of people to lie. Well, that's, you know, that, that, that really, it's, it's really something to base it upon, right? We, we don't doubt for a second that that exists, even though we've never seen it with our own eyes. So we, cannot, we can also indeed, I think, legitimately believe in God, have faith, have a Muna even, and yet not have any evidence, not be able to engage in, in a debate with an atheist, if you will. But there's a higher level that we're told in the, um, there's a mitzvah uh, that's, uh, that's uh, described in, in Pirkei Avot, which is Damash Tajlab Chorus. You have to know how to respond to a heathen. But you have to have evidence. You have to be able to engage theoretically. You should know at least how to respond. You should be able to have your faith be based upon fact and evidence and proofs. You have to know how to be able to dismantle the argument of someone who disagrees with you. 
know, for their sake or for your own? Well, what's interesting is that you're not told to go and debate with people that disagree with you, but you have to know theoretically how to respond to them. So it seems like it's for you. Okay. Uh, so that would give us level three. So I want to—I uh, don't want to go too far over time, like I am want to do, uh, but I think you know we are on our way to try to really investigate uh, this uh, uh, this whole realm of, of, of Jewish living, uh, of Emunah. Uh, and it's obviously so important. It's the center of, of our spiritual worlds. Uh, it's the most important element. It's really everything. It's, it's really the only element. Um, and uh, we see that there's really, it's, you know, it's not a cut and dried subject. It's not like uh, faith. Oh, you, you know, you kind of, you got it or you don't have it or you got it till you lose it or Someone has a crisis of faith. Something bad happened to them. Oh, that disproves the existence of God to them, right? You know, someone's dad, my dad beat me up, therefore God doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, right? Only if someone has unsophisticated, you know, just simple voter ID faith, uh, only then would a, a crisis of faith really dismantle that, right? Because logically, it doesn't make, logically we see a lot of travesties happen. It means the same theological problem we have with someone starving in Africa should really, you know, the crisis should be the same if, if we're starving, right? How come only when people suffer, only, only when they themselves suffer, do they start questioning God? They're responding to pain. That's it. Same thing. It's, it's, not, it's not real. It's not based upon logic. We see loads of people, loads of of, of Jews after the Holocaust that really had deep questions of faith. And then we see other people whose faith was deepened as a result of their pain. It's hard to... It's hard to judge them for sure, no, right? No, it's, it's very hard. To say, I mean, I've been reading a lot about the Holocaust. I just can't, you know, it's, it's hard to conceptualize well, we do have a lot of accounts of that. I know. No, I, yeah, I but, but for us, we're like, whoa, how does someone respond to so much pain with a deepening of their faith? It's dramatic. It's the only way they can go on. Or maybe, to begin with, they had such a strong and you know, background in faith that to them, they found some meaning in their suffering. They felt like, yeah, th- well, they felt like they were smacked really hard. But who smacked them? The Almighty smacked them. And that's different than meaningless suffering. Uh, and ha- how do you have that? Maybe, you know, maybe it's possible for us to, we, we, obviously we don't want to have any tragedies or any pain uh, in our lives or anyone that we know. Uh, but we see it's possible to achieve a level of faith where suffering deepens that faith, which is remarkable. Well, that's negating the physical, so the spiritual can come through. Exactly, right? The, the, the more spiritual we are, the more likely we are to make that conclusion, right? To say that, oh, yeah, I, I was hit and I was beaten, but my soul was elevated. Hmm, very interesting. Uh, once again, not to make the claim that 
um, that that we want that. Either way, uh, next week we're going to deep uh, we're going to for a deep dive into these two and move on to the higher levels of faith. Whoa! So we have three levels. This guy, there's seven more. Pretty interesting. Uh, so so uh, that's that, guys. Uh, sorry for going over time. We look forward to continuing next week, and we're delighted for another t- wonderful 2016. It's going to be fantastic. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Rabbi. Yeah. Make America great. That's right. Make America great again. <laughs>